This talk was given at the Insight Meditation Society in Bury, Massachusetts on September 30, 1982. The speaker is Joseph Goldstein. Tonight I'd like to speak about one of the most important aspects of the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of enlightenment. That is about the self and selflessness. To begin to understand how it is that we've created this prison of selfhood and the possibility of coming through the practice to the realization or actualization of selflessness. Kalu Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan meditation masters, in one of his teachings he said that we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this we see that we are nothing and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. The whole teaching. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. What's the illusion? What's the appearance that we live in? We live in the world of ideas, of concepts, the appearance of how things are. And out of that concept, out of those ideas, comes the sense of mine, my body, my personality, my life story, my family, my country. We add my, we add that sense of ownership, of possessiveness to the concept of our experience, not to the experience itself. Do we ever say, my earth element? Rarely. But we do say, my knee hurts. And immediately we're in the world of appearance. We're in the world of illusion. We've created that prison of self in that once removal from the actual experience of things. How much of our lives do we spend in our story about ourselves? And we are all living, we're all living in a soap opera. Now that's how we live our lives. We live our lives in this story which we've written and directed and produced and starring in. <laughs> One of the differences between meditation 
and different kinds of therapy. And it's important to understand the difference so that you don't spend three months here, or however long you'll be here, doing therapy, thinking that you're meditating. And this is not to place, I'm not saying this in any way uh, to demean the value of therapy because it's extremely helpful on its level. But I'd like to suggest and to point out that it's very important to understand the difference. On the psychological level of mind, we're still dealing with our story. We're making ourselves more complete, more full, better adjusted, happier, able to relate more openly. All things that in themselves are helpful in the way we relate in our lives. But it's still happening on the same dimension that we, per- that we generally perceive ourselves. It's still happening on the dimension of self, of me, of Joseph. I'll look at different parts of my mind, different parts of my personality and let go of some unskillful things and develop a little more love and compassion and I'll be a better person. Meditation practice, path of insight, is to go to a different dimension of perception. It's not to fix ourselves up. It's not to make ourselves better in that way. It's to change dimensions of perception. There was a movie, a short, short film. It was made some years ago. And it started out with a view of a man in a robot, a rowboat on a lake. You just see the man you know, sailing on the lake. And then it was as if the camera was moving away you know, from, from the rowboat. So you got a wider and wider, longer and longer perspective, and you saw the lake. And meanwhile, the man's getting smaller, and you know, the camera's getting further away. And you saw the surrounding earth and the village, you know, and the city, and the state, and the continent, and the planet. And the camera's getting further and further away. The man has totally disappeared by now. You know, and then you go out to the sun and the galaxies, and the earth disappears, you know, until it's so far out that there's just the vastness of space and, you know, infinite galaxies. That's a different dimension of perception. From that perspective, the man has disappeared. You can't see him. And what the film does is come back in, and slowly you start seeing the solar system, and then the Earth, and then the continent, and then the place, and the the lake, and the uh, rowboat. Then the camera starts going in. And it goes into the body of the man. So it gets closer and closer, and you start seeing all the you know, little bodily hairs and stuff. And it goes in, and the cells, you know, and the 
atoms and the electrons. And again, the man disappears. And all there is, is the vastness of space. You know, and these kind of energy patterns happening. It's a different dimension of perception. But for some reason, we've, we've become attached to this particular level, to the level of perception in which we take this body, this mind, to be some solid, separate entity relating to other body and minds as other solid, separate entities. The problem with attachment to this level of perception, again, it's not the level that's, that's a problem, it's the attachment to it that's a problem, is that it's predicated on a basic duality. And this level of perception, we're identified with it, we live our lives based on this sense of self and other than self. It's quality of duality, or being separate from. And inherent in duality is conflict. If this is a self, if this is me, if this is who I am, then what do I have to do with my life? I have to protect it and defend it and gratify it. Spend my life revolving about this sense of I, this sense of me, as being, being this. There's a lot of suffering involved in that. There's a lot of tension. How is it possible for us to experience, not intellectually, because that's not enough, doesn't help anything, how is it possible to actually experience this change of dimension? So we no longer identify with ourselves as being a solid body, a solid personality core, so that we can get past the illusion of the soap opera, get past the illusion of our particular dramas. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, and we are that reality. What's this reality that we are, free of the concept, free of the appearance? In the Buddhist psychology, there's a very, there's a very skillful outline or model of understanding experience free of the concept of self, of I, of ego. It provides a framework of understanding and it points to some very important aspects of the practice and of what we're doing here. One of the first aspects, the first kinds of reality that can actually be experienced and touched and felt, free of ideas, free of thoughts, free of images, are the material elements 
You know, and they're expressed in different ways of earth, air, fire, and water. What does that mean? It means earth is the, the sensation of hardness, or softness, or pressure, or tightness. Fire element is heat or cold. Air element is movement. Water element is cohesion. Dependent on those four come color and taste and odor, nutrient quality. Okay, so let's do an experiment for a moment. Suppose you put your mind just outside of yourself and looking back at yourself. What would you see? How would you describe it? Sitting on the floor, sitting on a cushion, sitting on a chair. That's when the attention is out here, looking back at an experience, but with a lot of space in between the observation and the experience, a lot of space for concepts and ideas to be filled in. Just now, as you're sitting, can you settle in to the experience of the touching of the cushion? The buttocks and the cushion of the chair. Just drop right into that experience. What is the experience there? There's pressure, there's a kind of hardness or softness, perhaps some heat. In that experience, where is the body? Where are the buttocks? Where is the cushion? Just in the bare experience of those sensations, it disappears. Now just for a moment, just move your arms slowly. Close your eyes. Feel the sensations of movement, just as carefully and microscopically as possible. As you do that, what happens to your arm? The arm disappears, doesn't it? In that experience of the sensation, the flow of sensation, there's no arm. Arm is a concept. So when you sit, and by the end of the day, your mind starts thinking, my back hurts, my knee hurts. You're lying. (laughs) You're lying to yourself. Because what's really happening, not what you think is happening, not the appearance of what's happening, but what's actually happening, there are some sensations going on, and it may be burning, or stabbing, or pulling, or throbbing, or pressure, or whatever it is, but your back is not hurting. It's a very different experience when you perceive things through the veil of concept 
the veil of ideas and when you're actually with the truth of the moment. Now you look around, and what do you see? See men, see women, see the Buddha, an image of the Buddha, an image of Siddhartha Gautama. I'll get more precise. <laughs> you know, ceiling and floors. And we don't see any of that. We don't see men, we don't see women, we don't see floor, we don't see ceiling, we don't see any images. What the eye sees is color and form, and light and shadow. That's what the eye sees. But what happens? Our mind is so conditioned to overlay a concept on color and form and light and shadow that we think we see man and woman. Just imagine how it would be if you went around or even just sat still only seeing color and form. It would be a very different level you know, of experience and perception. This is a good place to interject something that's crucial to survival. And that is that sometimes concepts, although they're concepts, are extremely helpful. <laughs> to illustrate the point, once when I was in India in Bodh Gaya practicing, doing, doing very intensive practice, one day I was walking into uh, the village to, to the Mahabodhi temple, the big temple where the Buddha was enlightened, under the Bodhi tree. And in Bodh Gaya, there was an elephant. Kind of a, the local, local big landlord had these working elephants. And I was walking down the road, very mindfully lifting, moving, placing, just being with each step. And then my eyes are downcast, and I hear the sound of the bells on the elephant, right? and the sounds are getting louder, and I'm keeping walking, and then I note hearing, and lifting, moving, placing. At a certain level of loudness of the bells, I stepped out of the way. <laughs> it was a cons quick conceptual, you know, a quick conceptual interjection. Elephant, move. <laughs> Maybe at a certain level of evolution, one just keeps on going, I don't know. <laughs> Concepts are useful, they're necessary for living, right? for interacting, for being in the world, for getting things done. But the problem is that we've forgotten that they're only concepts. And so we get attached to them and identified with them. Instead of using them because they're useful, and realizing that they're not the actual truth of the moment's experience. Could 
for the material elements. Another good example of how we confuse levels and the problems that come from that confusion. You're sitting in the hall. You've come all this way and you're very committed to doing your practice. And you're really making the effort to be attentive and be present and rising, falling, rising, falling. And the person next to you is moving around and making noise and coughing and not sitting still. And the mind's getting more and more irritated. And why can't they be quiet? And if they can't sit, why don't they go out and walk? And all this frustration and anger is built up. What's the anger about? If you heard hmm, cars going by in the street, you heard that sound, probably wouldn't get annoyed. Later on when the heat's turned on, you'll hear the symphony of the radiators, you know, pinging, ping. People don't get annoyed. You know. It's not the sound that's, that's creating the aversion in the mind, it's the concept about the sound. Now we hear certain sound, fine, hearing, hearing. But the mind doesn't stop with that. The mind hears the sound and then builds a story around it. Right? And the story in this case is, I'm trying to meditate and this person came and is bothering me. That's all story, that's all thoughts, that's all images. That's not hearing. Can you see the difference and how when we don't discriminate between our thoughts and ideas and concepts about things and the experience itself, we get lost in liking and disliking and judgment and aversion and evaluation. But coming to a sense, coming to the experience of the actual material elements which we experience rather than the appearance of them. There's another kind of reality which we can touch directly and it's extremely subtle and the one which we identify with the most and that's consciousness. the knowing faculty in our experience. Who or what is it that knows sound and knows sight and knows smell and knows sensation and knows movement? The knowing in each moment. That's called consciousness. Now, so even when we get reasonably sophisticated in our spiritual evolution, and we realize that, in fact, the body you know, comes into existence and grows and gets old and decays and dies. We begin to see the body is just changing elements. Still there's a sense, pretty strongly in most people, that there's someone observing this whole passing show, and that's who we are. We are the observer, we are the witness. 
And so we create this prison of self, even when we've to some extent disidentified with the body. Still a strong attachment, strong identification with the observer. There is no observer. There is observing. There's no witness. There's witnessing. There's a process of knowing arising and passing in each moment. Consciousness is a process of change exactly like the process of changing physical elements. The mind or the knowing which sees is a different mind moment than the one which hears or smells or tastes. It's a very extremely rapid succession of mind moments arising and passing away. According to in the Abhidhamma, the, the Buddhist psychology, there are 17 trillion mind moments in a flesh. I don't know how they counted them. <laughs> And I don't know if it's an accurate figure. (laughs) But what can be experienced through the refinement of our perception, we can actually experience this flow of consciousness and object arising and passing very, very quickly. We begin to experience that consciousness is is a changing momentary process. And so literally and actually, not metaphorically, we are being born and dying every single moment. It's not that there's one consciousness which comes in at birth and watches all the changes and dies at death. (laughs) We could think of ourselves as a strobe light. You know, we're just strobing. <laughs> but because it's happening so quickly, we haven't quite seen the, the spaces. You know, and so we think that we're this one continual being. It's very interesting to look carefully enough, to pay careful enough attention to the process, to begin to see the strobe-like effect of consciousness. How to do that, how to observe consciousness, very subtle. In one sense, and in another sense, we are that. And so all we have to do is really pay attention to our experience and it will become so evident. It's like if I say, Look at the space in the room. Become aware of the space. In one sense, it's very subtle. Now, where do I look? In another sense, it's the most obvious thing. All we have to do is settle back, and the space is right here. Okay, so, in being aware in the meditation, to learn to be aware of knowing, of consciousness, as you're with the rise and falling, or the in and out, The rising movement, the abdomen, 
The sensations are just physical elements. The abdomen doesn't know anything. So there are two processes going on. There's the physical movement, there's the sensations of movement, and at the same time, simultaneous with the sensations of movement, are the knowing of that. When you're sitting and you're aware of the rising and falling, do you know that it's rising and falling? I think so. Don't you? You know, it's rising and falling and you're paying attention. You know there's knowing that the rising is happening. You know the sensation of falling. Pay attention to that. With each rising, pay attention to the sensation of the movement and to the fact that you know that sensation. In the falling, pay attention to the sensation of it and to the knowing of it. And when you're walking, the leg doesn't know anything. Corpses don't know. This is just, this is, it's a hunk of meat on bones. And yet when we walk, there's the movement, just the physical elements, and the knowing of the movement. You know, there's consciousness there. Pay attention. Really investigate and look very carefully at that process because this is the beginning of getting to a different dimension of perception. Where we no longer are simply satisfied with the sense of, oh yeah, I know who I am, and I'm Joseph, and I'm this body, and I'm my personality, and my particular story. The soaps are boring. <laughs> We've been watching and living for so long. To begin to pay careful enough attention to be examining this process in a totally different way. In each moment, in every single mind moment of perception, there are two things going on. There's the object of perception and the knowing of the object. When we see, when we hear, when we smell, when we taste, when we sense something in the body, when we think, in every single moment there's an object arising and the knowing of that object. The talk is continued at this point on side two of this cassette. In every single moment, there's an object arising and the knowing of that object. Pay attention to that. Really see and understand in your own experience how what we are is this progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. Each one arising and passing away. Arising and passing, arising and passing. really changes in a very dramatic way the sense of who we are. We no longer see ourselves as this solid being, as this I, as the self, because we become this momentarily changing process. Tremendous surrender involved in that.
tremendous letting go. And the letting go comes from close attention. There's another realm of experience, beside the physical elements, beside consciousness, the knowing faculty. And it's the one where we get caught the most. Sort of the, the place where our stories are created. And that's a whole realm of experience, of mental phenomena, called mental factors. And these are factors, or qualities of mind, which arise in different combinations in every moment of consciousness. And in every moment, there's knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. The knowing is pure. That consciousness is pure. It's simply the knowing of what that object is. There's no problem with that. But in that moment of consciousness also arises a whole array of mental factors which color our perception. As an example, suppose we feel nice, pleasant sensation in the body, blissful sensation. Just sit back and imagine for a moment, bliss. <laughs> okay. Just the knowing of the sensation, and then in that moment of knowing might come greed. I like it. It's holding on. Don't go away. Greed is, greed is glue in the mind. Right? That's how greed works. It has the function to stick. Right? And so whenever greed arises, it's consciousness sticking to the object. How does it feel when you know, your leg or your arm is bandaged up with adhesive tape and you pull the adhesive tape off? It hurts. Right? That's what happens with greed. Because everything's changing, to the degree that we, we are sticking, the fact of change causes suffering. We're <coughs> so it's unpleasant. There's a kind of suffering involved in that. It has nothing to do with the consciousness of the object. It has to do with that factor right, of stickiness. What happens at this point is that we identify with the greed. My greed. I'm greedy. And we either indulge it, or we judge it, or we condemn it, we do whatever we do with it, but we take that greed to be me. I'm a greedy person. Greed is not I, it's not self, it's not mine, it's not permanent. It's a factor of mind arising in a particular moment, functioning in a particular way in that moment, and then passing away. It's dead. What's anger? Suppose something... Suppose we have a moment's experience, painful sensation, right? intensely painful. Somebody is hammering a nail through your knee. Right? Excruciating. The consciousness of the sensation, no problem. It's just knowing the sensation. But what happens is, because of conditioning, because of habit patterns of mind, in that moment's experience of knowing that object, 
aversion arises. Aversion has the nature to condemn, to strike against, not to like. It's really a violence against something. But anger or aversion or hatred is not I and it's not self. It's not I'm angry or I'm an angry person. Rather, it's just a factor of mine coloring that moment in a particular way. Again, arising, pissing away, finished. Greed, hatred, delusion. Delusion is fog in the mind. When delusion comes, we don't know what's happening. Love, generosity. You know, we hear so often, become a loving person, become a generous person, become a kind person. More lies. We don't become a loving person, we don't become a generous person. Rather, generosity is a factor of mind. When it arises in a moment of consciousness, it has the nature of opening, of giving, of letting go. It's just the opposite of greed, non-greed, non-holding. Love is the opposite of hatred. It's a feeling of goodwill. But there's no one who is generous and no one who is loving and no one who is wise. You see, the danger in spiritual practice, as these wholesome factors actually get developed, if they do get developed, as we practice, the danger of identifying, oh, I'm loving, I'm generous. I'm so wise. Big problems, because it's just reinforcing that sense of self, that sense of me, that sense of I. It's a conceptual overlay on what's happening. What's happening is, in that moment, there is love. In that moment, there is greed. In that moment, there is generosity. That's all. A moment's mind factor arising and passing. For those of you who are here for three months, you are not going to become more mindful. You will not be a mindful person at the end of these three months. Mindfulness may be there. That's different. Because if you have the sense of, I'm going to spend these three months and I'm going to become this mindful person, that's spiritual ambition. You're just, you're just creating the sense of self, creating the ego, in this rather spiritual way. It's a very different understanding than that of seeing the elements, these elements of mind, being cultivated impersonally. Mindfulness has a function. It has the function to notice what the object is. What's the difference between mindfulness and concentration? Mindfulness and consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing. Often people confuse it. Consciousness, awareness, mindfulness. A very good example of the difference. Suppose you're sitting and the thought comes in the mind and you get lost in the thought. You know, some story, some fantasy. Then a couple of minutes later you come out of that Somebody asks you, what were you thinking? Could you tell them? So 
probably. You know, thinking about you know, food or home or whatever. So you were conscious. There was consciousness of that thought. But you weren't mindful of the thought. That is, the thought was going on, and there was the knowing of the thought, but you were not aware that you were thinking. That's the difference between consciousness and mindfulness. Consciousness is arising in every moment. Every single moment is the knowing of the object. There's not always mindfulness of what the object is. And the practice is the development of this factor of mindfulness in every moment. Okay, so here's... the realities that we can experience. The realities of the physical sensations, the material elements, the reality of consciousness, the reality of the mental factors. How did we get stuck with this sense of self? If what we are is this process of changing mind-body elements, how is it that if you go up to anybody on the street and say, do you exist? Everybody says yes. Where did this strong sense of identity, self-identity, come from? An image which may be useful in understanding the difference between our concept of self and this experience as a process of changing elements. Suppose you go out tonight and you look up at the stars and you see the constellation of the Big Dipper. You see this, everybody knows the Big Dipper. What's the Big Dipper? Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? (laughs) What's the Big Dipper? The Big Dipper is a constellation of stars. That means it's certain stars in a certain configuration. It's not really there. We overlay that idea onto the sky. The sky is there, and there are all these stars in it, and we pick out certain stars, and we say, oh, there's the Big Dipper. Is the sky really divided? <laughs> you know? That's what we've done. We've created a constellation of experience, a constellation of sensation and thought and sight and sound and smells and emotions and feelings. We've created this constellation. We've created this picture of who we are. And then we take the picture to be real, just like we take the Big Dipper to be real. I have a challenge for you. Go out tonight, and if it's up there, see if you can look up and not see the Big Dipper. It's really hard. We have been so conditioned to see that Big Dipper, it's very difficult to see to look up at the sky and simply see stars. If it's that hard with the Big Dipper, you can imagine how hard it is 
to get past the appearance of this constellation of self, this constellation of Joseph. How to do it? One way to do it is to go right into it. In other words, if you, if from the perspective of the Earth looking up to the sky, you see Big Dipper, you go right into the Big Dipper, right into the center of it, right into space, right into emptiness. If we can go right into this constellation of self, we get past that dimension of appearance, past the dimension of illusion. And how to go right into it? There's a very simple way, and it's what the whole practice is about. The way to go into the truth of experience, rather than the picture of experience, is close attention. Not attention from a distance. Go right into each moment's experience. Moment after moment, make your attention close, rising and falling. That's not close enough. That's still being out here, observing it through a filter of idea. Get closer. Bring your attention, bring your attention right in. Touch the sensation. Touch the experience. And in that way, the illusion, the appearance, begins to dissolve. Begin to get a whole different sense of what this whole process is about. I'd like to close this talk with a secret magical mantra which will illuminate all the Buddha fields in all the realms and it's free. It's a free mantra. And in order for it to work you have to sit very still and you have to repeat it five times at the beginning of every sitting. This is true. This is not a joke. <laughs> the great secret magical mantra nothing is worth thinking about. Nothing. Nothing. not your life, and not your death, and not your love affairs, and not your relationships, and not your problems, and not your creativity, and not this wonderful thing you're going to do, and not the Dharma, and not enlightenment. Nothing is worth thinking about. Because thinking simply creates more stories, no matter what the thoughts are. It's just stories. 
It's not the experience of the moment. Don't get seduced. We do. But if you're aware, if it's really planted in your mind that nothing is worth thinking about, no matter how enticing and how helpful it's going to be for your life, and how happy it's going to make you, and how much it's going to solve, just do your secret magical mantra. Nothing is worth thinking about. In that, you can come right back to the truth of the moment's experience and the whole path of understanding unfolds. Do you have any questions? Good. (laughs) Close attention. Very close attention. Thank you.